Father, we want to declare today that we give you our hearts. We give them to you so that you may speak to us and transform us, work in us. We ask that you will help us let you do the work you desire to do. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Does it seem to you as it it does to me that sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, but at least sometimes, Christians aren't as good at dealing with people who see life and, and issues differently than we do? We struggle with that. I think it has something to do with um, how deeply we feel about the issues that are most important to us. We're called to be bearers of the truth. and We're people who've based our lives and, and, and all that we call dear as we consider truth. And it's a good thing. But sometimes it can lead to problems. In an attempt to maintain and live out the truth, we are tempted to focus the majority of our attention on lesser things. And we convince ourselves that these issues that we fight about are legitimate. And because they're important to us, we imply and we assume that they are then central. And so we end up drawing lines in the sand about virtually everything. We might even believe at times that it's our duty to be society's moral police. In our attempt to make our points, to stand our ground, we view life as a battle to win. We talk about culture wars, right? And when your interaction with other people is perceived as a battle to win, then you do whatever you have to do to win. If you have to be nasty to win, you do it because the most important thing is winning the battle. If you have to exaggerate everyone's point of view in order to win, you do it because the most important thing is winning the battle. And if you have to frighten people or or incite people in order to win, you do it because nothing is more important than winning the battle. And since it's pretty difficult to go to war against people that we consider friends, we vilify our enemies. We condemn them. We call them names. We, We exaggerate their evil. We exaggerate our good. We paint them with broad strokes. And ultimately, we cut off ties and communication with them because when you're trying to win a war, that's what you do to the enemy. And when you see life as a war, everyone who opposes you is the enemy. And we justify our behavior by telling ourselves and and other people that we are trying to transform the world for God. We're working hard to make the world a better place, that we're on a mission to take the world back for God. And what we don't realize is that this strategy paints an image of God that is small and insecure and fearful and closed. And the biblical image of God is, is large and sovereign and almighty and open. And when you get into that mode of thinking, the biblical view 
tends to surprise us. Now, there are many elements of the Christmas story that surprise me, but nothing surprises me more than the people who come to visit Jesus. On the one hand, you have the shepherds. This is an occupation that is considered basically at the lowest rung of occupations. It's one of the worst. Shepherds are social and religious outcasts. They're unclean in the eyes of religious and common people alike. And because their work is 24 hours a day, it's next to impossible for them to to get to the temple on any kind of regular basis in order to go through the ritual to make themselves clean again. We have Christianized the shepherds. We've idolized the shepherds, but they're really socially uncultured. They have a reputation for thievery. They're considered unreliable, so much so that they're not even allowed to testify in a court of law. They probably don't smell too good either. And yet when God sends the first heavenly delegation to announce the birth of his son, to declare that the long-awaited Messiah has come to the world in an act that is shocking and scandalous and outrageous and to some people deplorable, the angels appear not to priests in the temple, but to shepherds out in the field. On the other hand, you have the magi who are astrologers. They worship the stars. They are, they're probably Persian, but they're certainly not Jewish. They don't seem to know much of anything about a Messiah or about Yahweh. And yet, when God wants to announce the birth of his one and only son, the long-awaited, centuries-awaited Messiah, in an act that is shocking and outrageous and scandalous and to some deplorable, God sends not a law to Jewish scholars, but a star to pagan astrologers. We keep trying to put God in a box, a box of our own making, limiting him to do things one way, our way. And then we read of shepherds and magi and just throws all of our neat arrangement into chaos. I've been pondering this idea for a number of years, and particularly as it relates to how we view the whole process of salvation. As a young person, I believe in order to be a Christian, you had to have a, a crisis experience. And during that experience, you had to say certain words about forgiveness and asking Jesus into your heart. And if you didn't have that kind of experience, and you didn't say the right words, then you really probably weren't a Christian. And so I knelt at the altar and, and I said the words. And when I got up, life didn't seem that much different. And so the next time I went to the altar and I said the words and life didn't seem all that much different. So I went to the altar again. I went to the altar again and again because I believe that I had to have some kind of crisis experience that would dramatically change my life. That's what others said happened to them. That was the expectation and it certainly was true for many people. But here's the thing. For as long as I can remember, I've always known about Jesus basically always had a desire to follow Jesus. And now I'm being told I need a crisis experience that's going to change my life from what it's been. Change my life from what? Sometimes I wonder, maybe I'd be better off just go crazy with sin, then come back, and then I could have a crisis experience. It hasn't been that many years that I sort of felt the freedom from the tyranny of expectation that everybody else's experience had to be my experience. Now, do I need to surrender my life to Christ every day? 
I'm reminded that God works in different ways with different people. And surely the shepherds and the magi tell us that God is bigger than one kind of experience. It seems to me that God uses this Christmas story to challenge some of the barriers that we erect that are more often human designed than God ordained. Barriers that that often make God appear very, very small. And yet there's something in us that wants to keep creating barriers. We create theological barriers and philosophical barriers and ideological barriers. We create behavioral barriers and emotional and physical barriers. Barriers that, that cause dissension and arguments and hostility. and Barriers that keep us from talking to one another. Barriers that lead to pain and heartache. Barriers that make us think that we have the right to treat another person as someone who is less dearly loved by God than we are. As though Jesus comes for us and not for them. Historically, God's people have created barriers. Barriers that exclude children. Even though Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. God's people create barriers that exclude people of of different races and nationalities. Even though Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah, declares, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations, the nations will rally to him. And John records the song of the heavenly saints who declare of Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God's people create barriers that limit women. Even though Jesus sends a woman back to her village as one of the first evangelists and And the resurrected Jesus appears first to a group of women. And Paul writes in Christ's family, there can be no division, Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, and male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we're all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. And God's people create barriers aimed at people who struggle with certain issues typically that we don't struggle with or that we disagree with. Maybe for some it's evolutionists or or it's atheists or it's people on the right or people on the left. For some it's divorce or some it's abortion, some it's homosexuality. And while the Pharisees complain that Jesus is spending time with people whose lifestyle choices are very questionable to them, Jesus doesn't stop spending time with them. Jesus doesn't ignore the lifestyle choices. He doesn't affirm the lifestyle choices. He simply realizes that loving presence is better than condemnation. He wants people to know the transforming power of God. But first, they have to know that God loves them, that they're important to God. That God accepts them as he does all of us. And then he works to transform our lives. And despite what some Christians imply, there aren't some people who have to fix themselves up before they can come to Jesus. And we're building barriers while Jesus is building bridges. 
Now, I know these issues are complicated, with many facets, many opinions, and people on both extremes shout and point fingers and make accusations, and there are definitely difficulties to address, and there are issues that cannot be ignored. But I fear that in our, in our times of addressing those problems and issues, we create barriers that God doesn't create. I wonder sometimes if our concern in these volatile issues is about truth or about our agenda. If it's about helping people, all people experience the grace of God in Christ, or if it's really about winning the battle. Someone was telling me this week about an experience they had years ago with a friend who was openly gay. His friend went through a terrible breakup. He was deeply hurt. The person who was telling me said that, that she found out about it and, and, and she could have said to them, hey, you know, that's what happens when you make those kinds of choices. Too bad. But instead she said, Andy, I heard about that. I'm so sorry. How are you? I want you to know that I'm praying for you. Which response do you think was more like Christ? Which response do you think might lead this young man to believe that God loves him? What I found fascinating is that this person relating the story to me said that she felt guilty for being compassionate. Guilty for being compassionate? But we understand that. Because we're continually bombarded with voices shouting at us that if we don't see these issues the exact same way as they do, then our faith and our commitment to truth needs to be called into question. I'll be honest with you. I, you know, part of me is afraid you're going to misinterpret what I say today and you want to call my faith into question. I know these are issues of truth that need to be addressed. But we get so concerned with addressing truth that we don't love people as Jesus does. We build walls instead of bridges. I fear that sometimes we're more concerned with being right than with being like Christ. We want to stamp our truthfulness on the world. But Jesus says the world will know that we're his followers if we love, not if we know truth. Our witness is most in line with Christ when we love more than when we know truth. Is it possible that maybe we actually betray the truth in our attempts to stand up for the truth? I know it's contrary to, to what most many people will tell us, and, and sometimes it's difficult to think differently than how people talk to us. But the Christmas story of shepherds and magi tells us that while we keep building barriers to keep people we consider undesirable out, Christ comes to tear down those barriers. It's important to remember that Christ is born into a world full of barriers. Barriers between Rome and everybody else. Barriers between the religious elite and everybody else. Barriers between the rich and the poor, and men and women, Jews and Gentiles. Barriers between good people and sinners. And Jesus has hundreds of opportunities to confirm those barriers, to declare that they are right and necessary. But instead, he irritates and frustrates people by continually crossing barriers and, and breaking down barriers and refusing to acknowledge the barriers. The greatest barrier is between God and us. 
There is no more vast and expansive barrier, no higher wall than that which exists between God and human beings. God is sovereign. We're limited. God is almighty and we're weak. God is holy. We're sinful. God is infinite. We're finite. God is omniscient. We're in the dark most of the time. And all human wisdom says that God should stay away from us so that we don't soil his purity or limit his effectiveness or identify him with sinners. I suspect that if we were God, we probably would add more bricks to the barrier. I want to make it higher and, and thicker and stronger. But Paul tells the Ephesians that Jesus himself is our peace, who has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. And John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Matthew reminds Joseph that this child to be born is Emmanuel, God with us. When the the angel announces the birth to the shepherds, he declares, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. God comes and shepherds And magi are the heroes of the story. Do the shepherds have to have correct theology and clean themselves up before the angels sing to them? Do the magi have to have a clear understanding of God and creation before the star appears to them? Is there an angel at the door checking everyone's spiritual ID? And the only people left out by the people building barriers. And the God who breaks down the barrier between us and him is the same God who calls us to break down the barriers between us and others. You think, Minda, why do we create barriers? I mean, any kind of barrier. Typically, it's to protect us. We want to keep out people who, who might want to harm us or, or, or get at us. I get the feeling that often we build spiritual barriers in order to protect God, or at least to protect our image of God. But as well-meaning as that may be, that's the same argument that the Pharisees use as they build first century barriers. We don't have to protect God. In fact, the very idea of that reveals that we're living with a very tiny image of God. What kind of God do we worship if we have to build barriers to protect him? And I'm not saying that truth is unimportant, that all truth is relative, but that we don't have the responsibility to stand our ground on truth that is central to our faith. The problem is not denying truth. It's denying truth in such a way, fighting for truth in such a way that we build walls instead of bridges. We spend so much time designing and constructing barriers to keep people away from us and and from God. We don't have any time or energy left to lead needy, hurting people to Jesus. We're so enamored with, with keeping people out and protecting God that we drive away the very people who need God the most. I'm pretty sure if we were running the show... It wouldn't have been shepherds and magi who first heard and saw the child. 
And that ought to tell us something and it ought to warn us of maybe how far our thinking is from God's. And the hymn, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy, speaks of how God welcomes and, and, and gives healing to sinners. And then it says, but we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify his strictness with a zeal he will not own. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind. And the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. It's not that we condone the behavior or in any way enter into the behavior. But building barriers and walls presents an image of God that he will not own. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care how we live. In fact, it's because God cares how we live far more than we care that Jesus comes. It's because God wants so desperately for all people to be transformed and to be set free from all that entangles us and enslaves us that Christ is born. Ultimately, the kingdom of God keeps coming back to relationships. Building bridges so that all people can be transformed and and set free. Our Christian responsibility is to be a catalyst for breaking the cycle of barrier building. To begin tearing down the walls, the barriers that keep far too many people from believing that the child born in Bethlehem is born for them too all of us. So when the church service ends and you, and you walk out the door and encounter all kinds of people with all kinds of need, what does your life tell them about why and for whom Jesus is born? Are you building barriers or bridges? Father, forgive us for the barriers that we have built. And following the example of Christ and even your example in the holy moment of Christ's birth, make us people committed to tearing down walls and building bridges that all the world all people in all the world might know Jesus is born for them. In his name we pray.